Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It was just three days after the miraculous escape through the Red Sea when the Israelites first complained about water, and God provided. And then three days after that, more complaints. Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts the series Exodus, God's Provision in the Wilderness, with this sermon entitled The Lord Our Manna, which covers Exodus chapter 16 verses 1 to 12, and John chapter 6 verses 32 to 35 and 48 to 51. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. pray, and uh, then we'll jump into this new series. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your goodness just in the, um, the opportunity to gather in whatever space that looks like for, for us here in this room, for others online, for others in our chapel and hangar. Lord, uh, we just thank you that we get to be in your presence with your people and we pray your blessings over this time. We pray that this would be a time that as we open your word, you would soften our hearts. You'd give us ears to hear, that you'd make our hearts receptive to the teaching of your word. And Lord, if there is anything that is said that is not from you, um, may it be forgotten. But whatever is from you, Lord, would you press in deeply and may your word, your inerrant and holy word speak powerfully, transformatively, into our hearts and minds. Would you do it for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. So we did finish up a, a series last week in, uh, in our focus on heaven. And Randy uh, was going to preach, as he said, and then decided the Lord was leading him to show a sermon that was from uh, Howie Donahoe from General Assembly back in June when all of the PCA pastors in our denomination gathered together for our annual meeting. And the sermon, if you were here and, and saw it, or if you've watched it over the course of this past week, you know how powerful and, and special that sermon was. I've listened to it three times, and, and I am just allowing it through God's grace to quicken my heart towards a deeper longing for heaven and for the new heavens and the new earth. One of the things he said, and each time that I've listened to it, I, I, this part all of it grabs me, but this part, just for whatever reason, tends to jump out even more than the rest of the sermon. And he goes, it's this part, where he goes into a bit of a list, a long, long list of what will not be in heaven, what will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is what he said. He said, no wars, no pandemics, no tears, no sorrow, no pain, no hunger, no injustice, no racial strife, no disputing. No misunderstanding, no conflict, no temptation, no sin, no confession. I love how he even framed it, of, that our worship in heaven, our liturgies will not have confession of sin and how awesome that will be. So what I wanna do this morning is I just wanna add one more thing to his list that I get really excited about uh, that will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's complaining and grumbling. 
Hallelujah, praise Jesus. A lot of parents right now just felt their hearts leap. Some of you even looked down the row at your kids and said, you hear that? No complaining, no grumbling in heaven because we will be fully and completely delivered from this body of death and fully and completely uh, perfected in our newness of mind and heart, fully satisfied in all that God is for us in Christ for all of eternity. Now, this is good news for God's people because if there's anything that we've done from the very beginning, and I don't just mean the beginning of the church, I mean from the beginning of God choosing a people for himself, all the way back to Adam and Eve, if there's anything we've done well, it's we know how to complain. We know how to grumble. We don't have to teach little ones how to do this. There's not this session that we go through with our little ones that say, hey, let me teach you how to verbally express your inward selfishness. Here's how that happens. It's called a complaint. No, no, no. They just get it. We just do it. It just happens. It's instinctive. It's who we are. And the reason we're complainers and grumblers is because what's in us, as I just alluded to, is this nature that's centered and bent on selfishness and distrust with an um, infatuation with an inward uh, glance at ourselves perpetuating everything and a lack of outward marvel at who made us and what he's up to, what his purposes and plans are. And so when we think about the book of Exodus, we're getting into part two of this book. We did part one last year around this time, and we got through the first 15 chapters of Exodus, and we started to notice a pattern at the very end of those chapters. In chapter 14 and in chapter 15, we begin to see that Israel complains and grumbles. Let me show you just a couple of examples of this. In chapter 14, the context is they're on the shore of the Red Sea, and they're panicking, and in their defense, we would be right there with them in our panic and in our fear because on one side, they look behind them and they see the, the army of Pharaoh, the army of Egypt, and all of the hundreds, if not thousands of chariots bearing down on them, and they have nowhere to go because in front of them is the Red Sea. And they're panicking and wondering what's gonna happen. And so it says this in chapter 14, verse 11 and 12. It says, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, Part of the context as well is that this is after they've seen God do pretty incredible things. They've seen him bring the 10 plagues that ultimately uh, wooed, if you will, or, or motivated Pharaoh to let them go. They've seen the power of the Passover and what happened is they sacrificed a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost and the angel of death as he passed through the camp spared the 
the firstborn sons and all the houses that had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And they heard the, we, uh, the weeping and the wailing from all the houses that didn't have the sacrifice of the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. And they, they saw the deliverance of God. But then even once that deliverance had happened, they saw the, the leading of God before them. As he led them out, he did so with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they saw things that if you and I had seen, you would think that we would go, oh my goodness, I don't know what's about to happen with the army behind me and the sea before me, but I know who God is and I know he'll do something that only he can do. And so let's just wait and see. But that's not what we do. And I say we because that's, we, we're the same way. We're just like the Israelites. So, but God does. As you know, the story, he opens the sea. And these people that have been estimated to be somewhere between one million to two million people pass through this body of water on dry land. Then as they've passed through, God had been holding back Pharaoh's army with a wall of fire this whole time. And once they pass through, he drops the wall of fire. Pharaoh's army rushes into the water. He closes the water on top of them and they all perish and God's people are saved. In the cleansing waters, if you will, of the Red Sea. You know what they do next? They get on dry land on the other side and because the Presumably, the water body of water that they've just passed through is some mixture of fresh and salt water. They couldn't drink it. They get to the other side, and they're suddenly in a wilderness, and they're thirsty. And the God who they just saw split the sea, they now distrust that he can give drinking water. And so they complain. And it's not like, hey, a whole month has passed, and they haven't had drinking water. This is like the next day. And this is what they say in chapter 15. When they say, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And don't you know Moses was just like, are you kidding me, people? But this is who we are. This is what we do. We complain and grumble, like I said, because we are fundamentally selfish and distrusting. We have the residue of Eden strong within us little subtle Star Wars reference there. You know how the force is strong with this one. Well, we say that about every single one of us. The, The sinful nature of selfishness and distrust is strong within all of us, and it's the residue of Eden. Because in our very first parents, this was the driving force behind why they sinned. Selfishness and distrust. That the very God who created them in his image and that they walked with in the cool of the garden, that they would say, you know, I'm not sure what you've laid out for for us here is what's best for us. And this little serpent here seems to be giving us a better alternative. And so I'll distrust the God who spoke it all into being with the breath of his word and made me, you and me, Adam and Eve, he made us the pinnacle of his creation just not sure we can trust that. And so selfishly, I'm going to do what sounds better to me. And do you know what happened right after sin came into the world? 
As soon as sin comes to the world, remember, God comes and confronts Adam and says, what is this that you have done? And what does he do? He complains. He said, it's not my fault. It's this woman that you gave me. Which is both <laughs> an attack of God, blaming God and the woman, but it's, it's a complaint. It's not my fault. This is who we are and we have within us, we are born with that very residue of Eden. And so how that plays out is we distrust God because we don't believe that he's for us ultimately. We distrust God because we don't believe that he is sovereignly good and that he is indeed working all things together for good for those who know him, his people. And we don't trust God because we don't really believe that he's in control of all things and that every evil thing that happens on this earth is actually just a permission that he's given to the evil one that will ultimately foster the very purposes of God in a mysterious way that we can't see right now. And so we, in our selfishness, we distrust. And we see that being so true in the passage that we're looking at today. And what we're gonna see in, in Exodus chapter 16 is we're gonna see that even though, even though we are just like the Israelites, selfish and distrusting, even though we are complaining, we are a people who complain on the heels of miracles, we're gonna see a God who lavishly and inexplicably and astonishingly pours out his grace and provides for them in the wilderness. Just like he does for us, even to this day. So let's look at Exodus chapter 16. And we'll start in verse one, and as we read through the passage, I'm just gonna give you three observations. And then as we get towards the end, I'm gonna give you two big truths to take away. The first observation is this, as we read verse one, it's, it's not explicit in the text, it's implicitly there, but we'll see it. But the first observation is just to observe the faith of Moses. Because it's there in verse one. Listen, listen to what it says. It says, they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And so this is just... Uh, Moses reminding, hey, this is, as he's writing this down, this is the geographic context of what's, what we were doing at this point. And you go, okay, where is the faith of Moses in this? Well, part of it has to do with understanding where Elam was and what was true of Elam and what is the wilderness of sin and what's true of it. And, and Elam literally means palms, so what Elam was, is Elam was, in a sense, a bit of an oasis in the desert, in the wilderness. It was a place where there was fresh water, there was shade, palm trees, so on and so forth, and this is where they were camped. But it says that at this particular time, God led Moses to lead the people away from that and into the wilderness. Now, it was called the wilderness of sin, not necessarily because it was literally a place of sin, but figuratively, certainly, that's what it became. But sin, as it's translated in the Hebrew here, means 
clay and thorny. So you're moving away from the palms and all that that represents and all the realities of that and you're moving into being camped in the thorny clay of the desert where there is no shade and there is no water. And you can begin to understand why they would complain, right? Because they have to be looking at Moses and going, what are you doing? Why would we leave this place for that? Why would we leave Elam for sin? And so there was confusion, no doubt. There was uh, frustration. But there's also a faith on display here with Moses that's a model for us. This is how Arthur W. Pink says it in his book, Gleanings in Exodus. The leading of Israel into the wilderness of sin brings out the strength of Moses' faith. Here, for the first time, the the full privation of desert life stared the people fully in the face. Every step they took was now leading them farther away from the inhabited countries and conducting them deeper into the land of desolation and death. The isolation of the wilderness was complete, and the courage and faith of their leader in bringing a multitude of at least two million people into such a howling waste demonstrates his firm confidence in the Lord God. Moses was not ignorant of the character of the desert. He had lived for 40 years in its immediate vicinity, and therefore, he knew full well that only a miracle, yea, a series of daily miracles, could meet the vast needs of such multitudes. Here's what, here's what Moses knew. He had seen enough of God, he had been with God enough and walked with God enough to know that mature followers of God expect that he will at times in our life lead us out of the palms and into the desert. Mature followers of God expect that God will at times in our lives lead us out of the palms and into the desert. And he doesn't do so because he's cruel. And he doesn't do so because he's this God that is ultimately not in control and doesn't really fully know where he's leading you. He does it as we begin to see and we'll look at in the coming weeks, 1 Corinthians 10, where the apostle Paul starts talking about why did he do this? And he tells the new Israel, the church, he tells them, well, they served as an example for us. An example in in the way of knowing representatively how God works and what he does and how to see him and depend upon him in the land of temptation. It's the same passage in 1 Corinthians 10 where it says no temptation has seized you, right? But only that which God purposes, essentially. So how do we survive in the wilderness Well, this story that we're reading today is an example for us. It's an example of what it looks like in the negative sense to not trust this God who would take us there. And he does it ultimately. He leads us into the wildernesses of our lives. He does it ultimately so that we can be stripped away of the earthly comforts that we have allowed our hearts and our minds and ourselves to be so attached to so that we can see afresh yet again, or maybe for the first time, how satisfyingly sufficient he is. He and he alone. 
to take away the palms of our lives so that in the wilderness we cling to him. That's what we're gonna see even in this chapter today. The second observation is the grumbles of Israel. So you see the faith of Moses, but you, it's immediately met by the grumbles of Israel. Look at verse two. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. There's a couple things in here that I wanna make sure we don't miss. And it has to do with when our hearts are, are in this place of complaining and grumbling, it does a couple of things to us. When our posture is that of complaining and grumbling, here's one thing that happens. It warps our perspective on what's actually reality. Or it warps our perspective on what was reality. Did you catch it? They said, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Listen, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, that didn't happen. They were slaves in Egypt. They didn't have meat pots. They did not eat bread to the full. But we are a people, when we posture ourselves, bent towards complaining and grumbling, that that very posture will lead us into false realities of what we thought was true. We'll say the, gr the grass used to be really green back then. And then it's like, well, hold on now. I, I think you're remembering, you're misremembering here what was actually going on there. And I wanna be careful with this because there are things from our past that are really good. Like I, I know there are people watching and listening and in this room right now who would say, well, it, so am I wrong in saying that, man, that was that day back then, that time of my life when both of my parents were alive, wow, that was awesome. And I wish I still had that. Absolutely, that's, that's not complaining. Or that was before the divorce and, and that was when our life seemed to be what we had dreamed that it would be, or that was before my wayward children, or whatever it may be. And so there is this sense of, yeah, of course we look back and we remember the blessings of our past, but what tends to happen is that we're so fixated on how life, how good life used to be, or how good life could be, that in the current reality, we miss what God has for us now. So, because we get so focused on the meat pots, if you will, of our past that may or may not even have been meat pots. But in our memory, they were. And God's saying, but look, look where I have you now. What is it that I'm up to now? How are you focused on what God is doing, even in the wilderness now? Now, I wanna be clear about what is the wilderness. Well, the wilderness when you look at the whole of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, God clearly shows us that the wilderness is this life. It's the world. It's, it's the reality of a fallen and sinful world and fallen and sinful minds and fallen and sinful hearts and bodies. It's this life. We are in the wilderness as long as we are alive on this side of heaven. 
This is not our home. We are exiles in a foreign land. In the promised land, this is the imagery that God continues to use throughout the scriptures. The promised land, if you will, is not Canaan for the Israelites, although it was at that day and time, but it's the new heavens and the new earth. That's where he's taking us. But there are these in the context of of the big W wilderness that is this life, there are moments of deeper wildernesses where we suffer even more the consequences of a broken world among us. And it's painful and it's hard. And so when we complain, when we have a posture of complaint and groaning and grumbling in the midst of those little wildernesses in the context of this greater wilderness, we miss what God has for us in it because our perspective gets warped. The second thing that happens is that the more that we continue with the posture of complaining and grumbling, the more we just get disillusioned and discouraged. The more defeated we become, the more disheartened we become, and ultimately, the more distrusting we become. A little bit of an aside, but certainly connected. I think there's something that it's time yet again to say. And as I go here, some of you are gonna roll your eyes and go, Jeff, why do you keep bringing this up? And it feels a little bit like parents with their children. I'm not calling you children and I'm not your parent. But I am your pastor and it does feel like a little bit like, well, the reason I'm bringing it up again is because we just aren't getting it. I'll start by saying this. Social media is a toxic wasteland. It is not the place that fosters a disposition towards discussion and deference. It is a place that exists that continually manifests itself as a place of definitive declarations, defiance on my conclusion that I've already concluded and more and more prop, uh, propping up division. That's, what, that's ultimately what happened. Now listen, you're gonna come, and I know this will happen, don't do it, because I know there are exceptions where it's been profitable and it's been good. Listen, I'm all for posting pictures of your family on Facebook or any of those outlets. I'm all for you quoting scripture and quotes of dead theologians that point us to Jesus. I'm all for that. But I don't know one person, one time, I've been on Facebook since 2006, I've been on Instagram since 2011, I've been on Twitter since 2012, and I know there'll be exceptions to this as well, don't come to me and tell them, because I know there are some, but in my experience, there has not been one time that I'm aware of where someone has said, you know, your post on that political topic or about that post about coronavirus or that post about blank totally changed my mind, thank you. It just doesn't happen. All we're doing when we do posts like that, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking to the church. I'm not talking about out there. We just still don't get it. Because all that happens when we make those posts is we rile up the people who already agree with us and we continue to distance even more those that are the ones that we are called to reach. And so what's the purpose? It's as if if we lived it out in real life, it's as if we said, come over to my house and I'll get my hundred greatest friends and we'll just complain about all the things that we agree about. 
That's, it's, this, it's this space that exists in internet land where we have actually justified the reality that says this is a space where I can say things and post things that I would never do in quote unquote real life. And as Christians, we go, yeah, we're cool with that. Now, I would never do that, but this is okay. And we go, who are we fooling? We're fooling ourselves. All it is is a posture and disposition of complaint and grumbling, and it does not glorify God, so stop it. Okay, so I'm not looking for applause. I'm just passionate about this because I wanna see Jesus form us in every area. And if you're on social media, that includes every area. It's included in that umbrella. And so there is no little weird space over here that we get to be unchristlike. And it's rooted in this heart of complaining and grumbling, and it's been there since the beginning of who we are. And so if we are chasing hard after the work of Jesus in us to transform us more and more like him, then what does that look like in every space? We have to be a people that recognize that the more we complain and grumble, the more we breed distrust and disillusionment in our own hearts. But there's a third observation that I, oh my goodness, is so important. If I just ended the sermon there, you would rightfully say, man, he just totally just, and then walked away. Is there any grace? Is there any love? Is like, and the answer is yes, absolutely. Because look at the rest of our passage this morning, verses four through 12. Watch, watch this. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they walk, will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what we are that you grumble, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Talking to Moses and Aaron, you're grumbling not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Do you see what's happening here? God had every reason to appropriately punish them. And what he did instead is he astonishingly, amazingly provided for them. He poured out his grace on them. He even said, what, what were the two things he gave them? Remember what they said they had in Egypt that they really didn't? 
He said the meat pots and the bread. And what does he say? You want meat? You want bread? Here you go. He said in the evenings, you're going to find quail on the ground. You want meat? Eat till you're full. And in the mornings, every single morning that you wake up, there's going to be this bread-like wafer thin substance that don't think bread the way we see bread today this thin substance that is kind of like bread that will cover the whole ground like dew and go scrape it up go scrape it up and on the seventh day rest on the sixth day get twice as much as you need because even on that seventh day I don't want you to go hungry it reminds me of when Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good things? There is a grace on display in this passage that hearkens us and warms our heart to the greater narrative of the gospel. That we are a people that in every way deserved appropriate punishment for our sin, for our complaining, for our selfishness, for our distrust. And in every way, God should have smited us and said, if that's how you're going to respond to the Red Seas in your life and to the plagues that ultimately deliver you in your life, if that's how you're going to respond on the heels of the miracles that I have given you, then forget you. But he doesn't say forget you. He says, I love you. I'm gonna to move towards you even when you have smited me. And I'm gonna give you a greater manna. Because do you see what this manna is a foretaste of? Do you, when you understand the whole picture of the Bible, you realize that this is a story about Israel and manna that is representative of the greater story about God and his church and Jesus and his word. Because watch what happens. First, first thing to walk away, big truth to walk away with. This manna, God's manna, is a foretaste of a greater provision, and it's his word. It's God's word. Deuteronomy 8.3, when Moses is reflecting back on this event in Exodus 16, this is what he says. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might uh, make you know that, the man, that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Does this sound familiar? You remember when Jesus was where? In the wilderness. And Satan was tempting him. And he said, turn these stones into bread. What did Jesus say? He quoted this verse, Deuteronomy 8.3. And he says, no, I will not do that because man does not live on bread alone, but on every word of God. Why is that significant? Well, here's another little gospel picture for us. Because in all the ways that every time we have been in the wilderness, we fail. We give into temptation. We, we say, yeah, I wanna try to turn the stones into bread. We can't be faithful. Jesus, our older brother, went into the wilderness for us. And effectively and powerfully resisted the temptation that we cannot resist. And through his perfection and then death and resurrection, we now have a way through the wilderness. Because we have his word and we begin to understand that what God has given us as dew on the ground every morning, metaphorically, is his written word. That every morning he has given us, every day, whenever we want to go out and scrape up the manna of God's word and eat it and be nourished and be full on the very word of God. Man does not live on bread alone, but the very word of the living 
God. We have it in our hands. But there's another foretaste. God's manna is a foretaste of a greater provision, which is God's son. John 6, I love to teach John 6. It's one of my favorite passages. It's where Jesus is at rock star status. He's at the height of his fame and he's got all these people following him and then he just says this. He says, if you wanna follow me, you gotta eat of my blood and uh, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And they go, okay, I'm out. They think he's talking about cannibalism, but he's, he's talking about, as we know now, he's saying, look, if you wanna be in this place where you never hunger and thirst anymore, no longer will you hunger and thirst, it's only through eating by faith in my sacrifice. Remember the Passover meal, the lamb who was slain. What did they do after the angel of death went through and spared them? What did they do? They ate the lamb. They dined on the sacrifice. And what he's saying is this, you do the same with me. I'm your Passover lamb, the once and final lamb of God. And when I have made sacrifice for you by faith, dine on me. It is my flesh and it is my blood alone that gives you life. This is how he said it in John 6. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, clearly confused, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he continues a few verses later. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What Jesus is saying to us is he says, what happened in Exodus 16 was just a foreshadowing, it's just a foretaste. I'm your manna. I'm the bread of life who came down from heaven, from the skies, if you will. I'm the one who sustains you in the wilderness. I'm your provision in the wilderness. In every circumstance, in every situation, in every way that you are walking in and through the wilderness in your, right, in your life right now, I'm your bread. Now listen, that doesn't mean that, we, of course we go to God and pray, God, would you change? Would you heal? Would you rescue? Would you redeem? If we're in hard circumstances, God cares about that. But while you wait on that deliverance that either comes now or in heaven, he's our manna. We're all, we're all very familiar at this point by what's going on in Afghanistan. And my heart has just been absolutely broken and heavy over all that's happening there. We have felt all the emotions as we read reports and see reports. This past week, earlier in the week, I came across a story where a missionary couple was relaying how they had watched a believing family, a Christian family there in Afghanistan, be ripped apart by the Taliban. Not physically ripped apart, but where they took their teenage daughter and brought her into the Taliban is to be a sex slave. And I, 
I wept. I began to just tear up as I read it because I have teenage daughters. And even though I didn't want to let my heart go here, I began to envision what would it be like if that happened? What if someone came into my home and because of my faith in Jesus took my girls away? What might have been my last, what might be my last words to them? And Lord willing, that will never happen. But in the event that something horrific like that ever happens, what would I say? Now, I don't know. I I would imagine in a circumstance like that, you probably can't even get words out. You just have terror. But if I could speak, I might say this. You're about to go into the wilderness and I want you to fight with all you have against the evil that you're about to experience. And you can only do that through the power of the spirit within you. But listen, sweet girl, listen to me. You're about to go into the wilderness, but he's your manna. He is your provision. He is your bread. He is the one who will sustain you. He is the one that will provide for you. And regardless of the evil that you experience, he is the only one that will be there in your presence to carry you through. And if I don't get to see you again until we are being held in the arms of Jesus together himself and we dine together on that day, just know this. He will be the dew in the morning every morning that you can eat of. He will be the one that will cover the ground of your heart that you can come and every day he is faithful and the evil will tell you one thing and you will have every right to complain but he oh sweet one he is your man trust him don't distrust him trust him don't let your circumstances speak louder than his character he is the bread of life Oh, Jesus, that we would believe that to be true of you. That you are the one who meets us, sustains us, strengthens us, empowers us, feeds us, satisfies us in the wilderness of this life. And we pray and long for all the wrong and sad things to be made right and true. And we pray that you would deliver every single one of those girls that have been taken over there, that you would deliver them now, that they would know and see the goodness of God in the land of the living now. But Lord, we also trust you that if in some way that just remains a mystery to us for the rest of our lives, you don't deliver them into the land of the living until they are with you. We trust you. You are our manna. May we eat of you by faith every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Let's sing to him. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.